0: Welcome to The Bloody Bible, the podcast where we explore why our fascination with crime is as old as the Bible itself. I'm Kaz. And I'm Em. Today we're covering a topic that's bound to
1: come up again in other episodes of this podcast series, going to talk about dangerous men, both in the Bible and in contemporary culture too. But in particular, I want us to think about how some men misuse their power and status to victimise women. So, just to give a content warning at the start of the podcast, we'll be talking today about sexual violence, sex trafficking, and the sexual victimization of young women and girls.
0: So if you think you'll find these topics difficult to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode. And we'll also put some links to resources and support services in our show notes, just in case anyone wants to check them out. So, Kaz, can you think of any
1: dangerous men in the Bible? Yes, I can. I can actually think of quite a lot. I mean, where do I even begin? Well, let's take a step back before we start naming and shaming and maybe ask a different question. When you think of dangerous biblical men, what do you think it is that
0: makes them dangerous? Well, the dangerous biblical men I'm thinking of have one thing in common. They all have some sort of power. And that can be political power, like the Egyptian pharaoh, King David, King Xerxes, and the emperor Nebuchadnezzar, or it might be physical power, like Samson. But the thing that makes these men dangerous is that they use their power to hurt and exploit other people who have less power than them, particularly women and weaker men. So
1: do you think that masculinity and power always lead to violence in the biblical texts?
0: No, not at all. I I think of masculinity and power as being like two unstable chemical elements. If you mix them together in just the right amount, you can make gold. But if you get the balance wrong, or if you mix them up too vigorously, you're more likely to end up creating an explosion or a poisonous gas.
1: I really love that analogy. Thank you. And I completely agree. Some of Israel's kings and leaders used their power really wisely to keep the community safe, right? Or in the case of priests and prophets, their power lay in their abilities to act as intercessors between the people of Israel and God. But there are also some biblical men who misuse their power to victimize, to exploit, and to abuse others. So in this episode, I thought we'd look at one particular example where that mix of masculinity and power ends in complete disaster.
0: So what dangerous biblical man are we going to focus on?
1: Well, as you have already said, there are quite a lot to choose from. But I thought we'd take a look at King Xerxes, also known as King Ahasuerus, who was the ruler of the Persian Empire and who appears in the book of Esther. So the reason I chose him is that I think there's so much dangerous masculinity at play in this story, and yet it often gets overlooked by readers and by biblical scholars. So I want to explore the way that the king's masculine power and privilege enable him to perpetrate the sexual victimization of countless young women and all in plain sight. So, Kaz, can you give us an overview of the Book of Esther? I know, I know it's quite long. I know it's quite complicated as a story, but we're going to be focusing on the first few chapters.
0: So maybe you can just tell us about them. Sure, I will do. So the story is set in the Persian capital of Susa during the 5th century before the Common Era. And at the very start of the story, we're told that King Xerxes has been hosting two ridiculously lavish banquets in his very opulent palace. And these banquets have actually lasted a total of 187 days, so that's six months. What? <laughs> that's, that's a party. Yeah, it, that is one, one heck of a party. <laughs> now, on the last days of these banquets, the king is pretty drunk, as you can imagine, and he orders his wife, Queen Vashti, to make an appearance at the banquet so he can show off her beauty to the guests. Now, Vashti refuses and the king is so angry that he ends up exiling her from the court. But then he realises that he needs a new queen. So he issues a decree that young women from all over the empire are to be transported to the king's harem. These women have to undergo a year of beauty treatment before being sent one by one to spend a night with the king so that he can choose one of them to replace Vashti. Ugh. Yeah, not great. Now, one of these women is called Hadassah, also known as Esther. And she's a young Jewish woman who's been living in Susa with her cousin Mordecai up to the time she's taken into the harem. And when the king eventually gets to spend the night with Esther, he is so smitten by her that he decides that she'll be his new queen. Goodness, yeah, there's quite a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah, it's, the action is pretty relentless in this story. It's one thing after another. But that's chapters one and two in a nutshell. And just let me sum up the rest of the story very, very quickly. So after a series of dramatic events, Queen Esther works with her cousin Mordecai to successfully thwart a plan to annihilate all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. And to commemorate their victory, they issue their own decree to hold an annual festival known as the Festival of Purim. And as I'm sure we all know, the Festival of Purim is still celebrated to this day in Jewish communities around the world. Mm. So sorry, that ended up being quite a long summary, but as you said, there is so much going on in this book. There really is. But as I mentioned, we're going to focus on the first
1: two chapters where we read about Vashti being deposed and the king's search for a new queen. Sounds good. So, Kaz, what are your first impressions of king xerxes when we meet him at the start of the story
0: well i'm tempted to call him quite a few rude names (laughs) right from the outset but i shall restrain myself for now the thing that stands out for me is just how much this king enjoys showing off his status and power yeah we're told in esther chapter 1 verse 4 that he's been holding these months-long lavish banquets because he wants to and i'm reading from the text here display the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. So in other words, he wants everyone to recognise just how amazingly powerful he is. And that's really annoying.
1: Yeah, it's a really kind of in-your-face display of power, isn't it? I find it—I actually find it quite gratuitous. Mm-hmm. But what do you think of the way he treats Queen Vashti? Why do you think he
0: wants her to come to his banquet? I wonder if he wanted to show her off to his guests. The text says that he told his servants to, and I'm quoting here, bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So maybe he's trying to demonstrate his you know, masculine credentials by having such a beautiful wife and also a wife who is under his control and who does what he her to do. But it gives me the creeps because it, it feels very exploitative He seems to be treating Vashti as an object to be ogled at by all his guests. It's really interesting you say that, because I know
1: that some biblical scholars have actually suggested that when the king tells his servants to bring Vashti in wearing her royal crown, he's actually expecting her to come dressed only in her crown. Oh. So in other words, completely naked except for the crown jewels.
0: Oh, wow. Well, if that's true, I'm really glad Vashti told her husband to get lost.
1: Yes, absolutely. I actually, I love her response here.
0: Yes, me too. Mind you,
1: she pays the price for it, doesn't she? Because when she won't come to the banquet, the king is so angry that he exiles her from the royal court. I wonder if he's feeling humiliated and disrespected by her refusal to do what he wanted her to do. Mm. Yeah. She challenged his authority and in front of all his guests. So, you know, even though she's completely badass, she totally pays for it.
0: Yeah, she really does. And it's not just the king who's really disturbed by Vashti's behaviour, is it? His advisors seem to be pretty rattled too. Their response is really telling. They're worried that Vashti's
1: disobedience will inspire other women in the empire to follow suit. So they warn the king saying, and this is a quote from the text... The queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and there'll be no end of disrespect and discord. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh, because they're really exposing their masculine insecurities here, aren't they? I mean, it's all on display.
0: (laughs) It, It really is, yeah. I mean, heaven forbid if a woman dares to disobey her husband. It's as though these really powerful men can't bear the idea of any woman exerting any agency of her own. Exactly. A woman's agency is a problem because it's a direct
1: challenge to male power and authority. So, you know, it can't be tolerated in this deeply patriarchal culture. Mm, yeah. It's really fascinating that they even go so far as to issue a decree that, quote, every man should be ruler over his own household. So in other words, the king is effectively making it illegal for a woman to undermine her husband's authority and control. Mm. Now, this seems somewhat
0: extreme to me, <laughs> like a bit of an overreaction. It really, really is. That decree actually reminds me of a much more recent case. Have you heard of Keith Ranieri? I actually have, yeah, but remind our listeners who he is. So he's the founder and leader of Nexium, the MLM slash sex cult that was based in Albany, New York. Ranieri was convicted in 2019 of numerous charges, including the sexual exploitation of underage girls and sex trafficking. He's currently serving a 120-year sentence for all his crimes, and boy, he deserves every minute of that.
1: Yeah, his abuse was absolutely horrific. Mm. He's a total creep. But why does the King of Persia's decree remind you of Keith Ranieri?
0: Because all Ranieri's abusive relationships with the women in Nexium were rooted in power and coercive control. He groomed and gaslit young women to obey his every word, to believe everything he said, to do whatever he told them, and to never ever challenge him. Yeah. He, he created this methodical regime of rules and rituals within Nixium, and if anyone questioned him or refused to comply with these rules, he'd shame them and punish them or threaten to punish them. Some of the women who thought about trying to leave Nixium were often too terrified to do so, and when they did leave they they remained terrified because they were so afraid of the consequences of their your quotes, disobedience. So like the king of Persia's decree, Ranieri created a system that tried to shut down women's agency. And that's why I see the connection there.
1: I mean, I've never made that connection before, but you're
0: absolutely
1: spot on. There are some really strong resonances there. These rules and regulations are so often used by abusive men to entrap their victims and to control every aspect of their lives. Yeah. I think we actually see the same dynamic of male domination and female subordination in Esther chapter 2 as well. So this is where the king wants a new wife because he's got rid of Vashti, but it's not enough to just find himself one woman, he has to sexually exploit a whole bunch of women in his effort to find a new queen. Now the text doesn't tell us how many women were brought to the king's harem, but We're told that the king appoints commissioners in every province of the whole empire to gather the women
0: and bring them to Susa. Yeah, so we're we're probably talking about a lot of women, right? Yeah, and I'm guessing they'd be young women too, given that the typical age for women to get married during this historical period uh, was the mid to late teens. I wonder what these girls thought about being brought to Susa to enter the king's harem. I mean, did they actually have a choice in the matter? Could they say, no thanks, I don't want to go? Well, the text doesn't actually tell us anything about these women, other
1: than that they were gathered from all over the Persian Empire. In fact, I'm pretty sure most readers completely overlook the plight of these girls because we're so focused on Esther's story. Yeah, yeah. So there's nothing mentioned about how they felt about their transportation to Susa, but given the gender dynamics of the story so far, I'm not confident that the girls would have been given the choice to refuse. Mm. And given the huge power disparity between these displaced teenage girls and the king of Persia, I think we can pretty safely say that they didn't have the capacity to freely give or withhold their consent. So as I understand it, the way they're treated is, is coercive at heart.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And that coercion is also encoded in these royal decrees, isn't it? These opening chapters of Esther make clear that all women in this story are being controlled and exploited through various laws and statutes that are created and implemented by powerful men for powerful men.
1: This is something that's brought up by the utterly brilliant womanist biblical scholar, Dr. Erica Dunbar.
0: Oh, yeah. Erica wrote a fascinating book. It came out last year, and it's called Trafficking Hadassah, Collective Trauma, Cultural Memory and Identity in the Book of Esther and in the African Diaspora. It's absolutely amazing. Yes, that's exactly the one. So Erica argues that the book of Esther is a
1: story which reflects sexual exploitation through the sex trafficking of virgin girls by the Persian Empire. So at its heart, this biblical book tells a story of gendered violence, exploitation, trafficking, and displacement.
0: I love Erica's work. It's amazing. And we'll link to some of it in our show notes so that our listeners can check it out themselves. But yeah, Erica recognises what's happening to these teenage girls as being a clear case of sex trafficking and exploitation. And I think her work is pretty groundbreaking because it's not the typical way this biblical story is read, is it? No, it's not. A lot of biblical
1: scholars read the story of the king's search for a new queen like some sort of beauty contest or beauty pageant, like a reality TV show like Love Island or The Bachelor or Married at First Sight or whatever. And the year-long beauty treatments are often described as kind of pampering the girls or offering them spa treatments.
0: Uh, It's so problematic, isn't it? I mean, it's really ignoring the non-consensual and exploitative nature of this entire process. And these so-called beauty treatments that last an entire year reinforce the ideology that a woman's worth is measured by her ability to be an object of desire for men. It has nothing to do with her intellect or her emotional intelligence or any other talent that she might have.
1: But more than that, I actually see these beauty treatments as part of the grooming process to make these girls complicit and compliant.
0: Oh, okay. Can you say a bit
1: more about that? Sure. So on a surface level, the text suggests that these girls are treated relatively well. They're put under the care of Hegai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. Some of them, like Esther, are given treats like special food, nice accommodation, and female attendants to look after them. And so we might think, oh, you know, that's lovely. At least they're being well looked after. But In my opinion, it's far from lovely. These girls are being held in a harem which they can't leave, and they're being groomed and manipulated so that they're obedient and easier to victimize. They're being controlled, they're being regulated, their bodies are being subjected to all manner of so-called treatments, whether they want them or not, and they're constantly surveilled by all the king's servants who work in the harem. It just feels so coercive and claustrophobic.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. And it actually reminds me of something else I read about Nexium. Some of the women in the group said that their bodies were continually policed and controlled by Ranieri and his um, other kind of inner circle members. And this control included what the women looked like, what they ate, how much they weighed, what they wore, how much they slept, how they spent every minute of their day. Ugh. Yeah, it's, it's really grim, and apparently Ranieri ordered some women in the group to follow near-starvation diets so that their bodies would be more desirable to him, like thinner and thinner and thinner. It was as though he wanted to mould and manipulate these women into whatever he wanted them to be, in the same way that the Persian king is moulding and manipulating all the women in his harem to look exactly how he wants them to.
1: And actually, that sounds really similar to how R. Kelly used to treat his victims as well. So over the past 25 years, he's been accused of targeting many, many women, including underage girls, and then isolating them, controlling their behavior, and sexually abusing them. And in fact, it wasn't until last year, in 2021, that he was found guilty of numerous crimes, including sexual exploitation of children, kidnapping, and sex trafficking. I mean, he's not been sentenced yet, but honestly, I really hope he gets a similarly long sentence to Ranieri. He should not be allowed to be around girls and young women.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, both men are just horrific sexual predators. Yeah.
1: So going back to Esther, I think we also need to remember that all the girls who were brought from across the empire to the king's harem appear to have been plunged feet first into this really intensive royal life that they've probably never experienced before. They must have just felt so overwhelmed by it all. In in what sense do you mean? So in the sense that they were young, vulnerable and displaced girls. And here they were in this luxurious and sumptuous palace surrounded by incredibly powerful people, you know, kings, courtiers, politicians and so on. And I think that display of wealth could feel just so overwhelming because it's sending out a really clear message that they're in a situation where they have the least amount of power. And that would feel just so intimidating, I think. I mean, they're far less likely to make a fuss or try to cause trouble because what would the consequences be if they did?
0: Yeah, and that reminds me again of Nixium. Uh, one of the tactics Keith Ranieri used to recruit new members to the group was to host the meetings in nice houses or have celebrities present. Or he'd mentioned that various powerful and famous people were involved in the group themselves, or at least they endorsed it. You know, for example, Richard Branson, Jennifer Aniston, even the Dalai Lama. Mm. It it was a really effective way, I think, to seduce new recruits into the group or or to make the group appear powerful and respectable.
1: And as you were speaking there, I was reminded of another sexual predator who I'm sure we've all heard of, Jeffrey Epstein, who was charged in 2019 with sex trafficking a large number of underage girls. And Epstein used very similar tactics to Ranieri to manipulate and groom his victims. A lot of the girls who were just teenagers at the time were invited to his house in Palm Beach to give him a massage, and he used to pay them a couple of hundred dollars. But he also tried to initiate various sexual acts with them as well. What's really telling, though, is that as the girls were led through the house to meet Epstein, they'd pass along hallways and through rooms that had lots of pictures hanging on the walls. And some of these pictures were of Epstein with really famous and powerful people, you know, world leaders or politicians, members of royalty, even the Pope. Ooh, so, so what do you think was going on there? Well, I was listening to a discussion about it on the Real Crime Profile podcast and the hosts, Jim Clemente and Laura Richards, suggest that this was a deliberate strategy used by Epstein to demonstrate his power to his victims so that they were even more likely to be compliant with his demands.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, so the pictures made it seem almost like these super powerful people endorsed and improved of Epstein and his behavior. And I think that just made it even harder for these young, naive girls and women to call out their abuser, when even the Pope seemed to approve of him.
0: Yeah, that that really does make sense. It, it's as though Epstein's wanting to drive home the power imbalance between him and these girls that he's sort of lured to his house. Exactly. I I can imagine they'd be feeling really intimidated at that point. I mean, how do you say no to a man who rubs shoulders with world leaders, with the Pope? Yeah. I also think what accentuated the situation was that Epstein used to choose victims who were not only very young, but also vulnerable or marginalised in some sense. Some of the girls had a history of abuse, for example, or they came from dysfunctional families. And the power disparity between these girls and their incredibly wealthy and well-connected abuser made it far easier for Epstein to groom them and make them compliant And it was far harder for the girls themselves to escape his abuse.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And I think we see similar tactics being used with the girls in the Book of Esther. They're trapped in this context that's just so overloaded with royal power. And the king of the entire Persian Empire, no less, is the one who's controlling this whole situation. Yeah. So, I mean, what choice does a teenage girl have other than to do what she's told? How could she possibly
0: say no to the king? No, I know, and and added to that, all these girls would have been feeling really isolated and powerless because they'd been displaced. They're so far away from home, and they probably had absolutely no social support networks there in Susa. Exactly, and that's another tactic of abusers, isn't it? They isolate their
1: victims, keeping them away from support networks, kind of alienating them from family members, which again reminds me of Nexium, where Ranieri would try to prevent members of the group from talking to family members or talking to friends, probably because he was afraid this would dilute his power and control over his victims. So it was another
0: tactic he used to coerce and manipulate them. Could I go back for a minute to what you were saying about the pictures hanging on the wall in Jeffrey Epstein's house? Yeah. I I listened to the first few episodes of the Wondery podcast called The Mysterious Mr. Epstein and also remember hearing that as, as well as these portraits of the rich and famous, he also had photos of nude young girls and women hanging up on the walls so that the girls who came to his house... We'd also see these as they were taken to meet him. Yeah,
1: he did. It's so gross, hey?
0: Yeah. I wonder, I'm just curious to know what might be going on there. Yeah, so
1: I think it might have been a deliberate strategy to kind of normalize nudity, you know, another part of that grooming process. It sends out a message that nudity is expected or even required in the presence of this incredibly rich and powerful man. One of his victims reported that when she was introduced to Epstein, the first thing he said to her was, "'Take off your clothes,' and she tried to keep some of her clothes on, but he insisted that she take off everything before she started massaging him. And another of his victims, Virginia Dufresne, said that right from the outset, Epstein would aim to control his victims, telling them how to behave, how to act, that they had to do what he said, that they had to be kind of quiet and submissive, they had to perform certain sex acts." in certain ways that satisfied him. He just had to be in
0: control. Oh, that's awful. So do you think something similar is happening to the girls in Esther? I really do. The opulent harem,
1: the beauty treatments, the carefully orchestrated rituals of girls taking turns to spend a night with the king. You know, everyone's telling them that it's an acceptable or even expected part of living in the royal court. So the abuse that's taking place is normalized and all these processes and rituals serve to manipulate the girls, making them feel powerless and acted upon, encouraging them to be compliant. And there's this promise hanging over their heads that they might be the one the king chooses to be his new queen, but they have to do what they're told. They have to have sex with the king and do their best to kind of please him because if they don't they'll be sent straight back to the harem so the girls are far less likely to speak out or to object because they're being groomed to do what they're told otherwise they won't be quote you know the chosen one
0: Mm, yeah and that reminds me again of nexium i'm sorry to keep going on about it but i'm seeing so many connections here Keith Ranieri had his own harem of about a dozen women, and it was referred to as a harem by members of Nexium. Now, he would choose one of these women to have sex with on a regular basis, and the women were forbidden from having sexual relationships with anyone else but him. If they did, he would punish them. Apparently, he kept one woman a virtual prisoner for 18 months because she had admitted to having a romantic relationship with someone else. Sorry, what? Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely... It's mind-bogglingly awful. Some of the other women in Nixium testified at Renieri's trial that they'd also been coerced into having sex with him or, or pressured into doing something else that they were really, really uncomfortable with. Because if they refused, there was always a threat of punishment hanging over their heads.
1: Ugh. And I think that takes us back to the Book of Esther, where Vashti's refusal to comply with King Xerxes' demand causes her to be punished. Just like Ranieri, Xerxes can't stand a woman saying no to him.
0: No, he can't. He can't. He can't deal with it. But you know what really frustrates me? That the story of the king's search for a new queen is so often romanticised as this charming love story that ends happily ever after. Yes, To describe it in this way, and it is described in in biblical scholarship and in popular culture, it's it's romanticised as this fairy tale. But that really ignores the elements of capture and terror and displacement and sexual violence which lie at the heart of this narrative. I mean, for me, it reads more like a horror story than a love story. I completely agree.
1: And we have to remember that this entire process happened over a number of years. Erica Dunbar makes the point that people don't always realize how long this process went on for. The king of Persia issued his decree to gather these girls to his harem during the third year of his reign, but he doesn't marry Esther until he'd been on the throne for seven years. So that's four full years that these girls were held in the harem. And what happened to them after the king decided to marry Esther? I mean, do they just stay in the harem for the rest of their lives? We're just not told.
0: Yeah, they're they're simply disappeared from the narrative, aren't they? Their experiences in that harem are never really mentioned. Their stories are never told. And all these girls are just so vulnerable because of their age and their gender, not to mention the fact that they're so far from home.
1: And I think these girls' vulnerability is exacerbated by their ethnic otherness and the fact that they've been displaced from their homes in other areas of the empire. All of them, including Esther, are from marginalized and colonized communities which renders them particularly vulnerable to abuse. And perhaps that's why they were chosen for the harem in the first place. The king wanted women who were vulnerable, malleable, easily intimidated, you know, not likely to challenge him or say no to him. He doesn't want another Veshti.
0: No, he does not. And maybe he also wanted women who no one would make a fuss about when they're taken from their homes, when they're transported to Susa, and essentially when they're abused and raped by the king. Do you want to say a bit more about that? What do you mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of what you just said about these girls being from marginalised communities. They're not high-status, privileged Persian women. They're colonised girls. And no one in the king's royal circle is likely to stand up and defend them or call out the king for abusing them. Mm. And more than that, they there aren't many biblical interpreters who take time to recognise these girls' abuse in the text or call it out themselves.
1: And that actually reminds me again of R. Kelly. What I find particularly horrendous about his case is that it took over 20 years for anyone to really listen to his victims and to take their accusations seriously. Even when more and more victims came forward, law enforcement and the media were pretty slow to respond as though they weren't overly interested. They just didn't recognise his relentless pattern of ongoing abuse. And I wonder if that's got anything to do with the fact that R. Kelly's victims were predominantly young black women who were already so marginalised that their victimisation wasn't taken seriously.
0: No, no, it's not. And I think we see something similar with the case of Peter Nygaard, who was charged in 2021 with raping and sex-trafficking young women and teenage girls both in the United States and also while he was living in the Bahamas. Now, many of his victims in the Bahamas were local Bahamian teenage girls who came from very low-income families. And I just find it really telling that this case has gotten far less attention in the media than the cases involving Jeffrey Epstein or Keith Ranieri, many of whose victims were white. And that lack of media interest belies the fact that Nygaard is thought to have raped and trafficked hundreds of girls over the past few decades. So I've never heard of this case.
1: (laughs) I rest my case. That's absolutely staggering and so upsetting. And I think you're absolutely right about the socio-ethnic status of these girls being why it hasn't garnered the levels of attention we've seen with someone like Jeffrey Epstein. But both the R. Kelly and Nygaard cases remind me of the young women in the Book of Esther in the way that, just as you said, their victimisation gets overlooked, perhaps because they're from such marginalised communities and so they aren't deemed so deserving of our concern than other, more high-status victims.
0: And even Esther's own victimisation at the hands of the king isn't often recognise, despite the fact that she's the hero of the story. Yeah. Although it's interesting that she gets far more attention and sympathy than those unnamed girls trafficked from all across the empire whose victimisation essentially gets ignored.
1: Yes. And actually that reminds me of something else Erica Dunbar discusses in her book. Erica notes that sex trafficking relies on a whole network of people performing a series of key roles to manage the trafficking operation. So there's the perpetrator, but there's also the vendors, the facilitators, and the victims. And Erica points out that the various characters in Esther also seem to perform these roles.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Can you say a wee bit more about that, who she kind of identifies as taking on these various roles? Sure. So for starters,
1: we've got the king as the perpetrator, the one who sexually exploits his victims. But his servants and advisers at the royal court at Susa are the vendors, the people who orchestrate and perform the systems that make trafficking possible and keep it functioning effectively. There's also the commissioners in the Persian provinces who perform the role of facilitators. They're the ones who expedite the victimization process and organize the abduction and forcible transportation of the girls to Susa. And lastly, of course, you have the victims themselves. And I think this is such an important point to make. Because it reminds us that sexual exploitation doesn't just involve a perpetrator and a victim. There are often so, so many other people who surround the perpetrator and enable him to continue his abuse. So the king was aided and abetted by so many people, from his closest advisors right through to his servants who ran the harem. They
0: all played a really important role. Yes, and we see that too in some of the contemporary cases we've been discussing, don't we? I'm thinking about men like Keith Ranieri, R. Kelly, Peter Nygaard and Jeffrey Epstein, who were all surrounded by lots of people who enabled them to continue trafficking and victimising countless young women. For example, Ranieri had an inner circle of enablers who worked so hard to recruit new members to Nexium and to scaffold Ranieri's power and control over his victims. Nygaard had various staff members whose sole job was to find young girls and persuade them to come to one of his parties where he would end up raping them. He even had security staff who'd stand outside his bedroom door while the rapes took place so that he wasn't interrupted. No way. It's horrific. Yeah, it really is. It's awful. Yeah.
1: And Epstein was helped particularly by his very close friend and former partner, Ghislaine Maxwell. Mm-hmm. Now she reminds me of one of those commissioners in the Persian provinces. For me, she fits the facilitator role by recruiting and grooming the girls for Epstein and his cronies to abuse but there were just so many others beside Maxwell who were involved. Epstein had drivers and pilots who transported the girls to his various houses. He had housekeepers and staff who would have seen the girls coming and going all the time. He would have had plenty of friends who, regardless of whether or not they participated in the exploitation of these girls, must have known what he was doing, yet they said absolutely nothing. And they must
0: have known because he did it in plain sight. He didn't really try to hide it no he didn't he didn't and I think we see the violence happening in plain sight in the book of Esther as well don't we yeah there's this whole group of young women countless women who are trafficked and sexually exploited but there is nothing in this biblical text and very little in the history of the interpretation of the book of Esther that explicitly recognizes this and holds these women up as being victims of sexual abuse which is really annoying and depressing. Yeah, it it really is. So we started off the episode um, talking about the potentially dangerous cocktail of masculinity and power. How do you think the Book of Esther shines a light on this topic?
1: Right at the beginning of the story, we see how Vashti's refusal to obey her husband leads the king to suffer some sort of crisis of masculinity that leads him to orchestrate the widespread exploitation of women. So for me... The story exposes the fact that men can be especially dangerous when their masculine power is challenged. I mean, all it took for Xerxes to initiate an empire-wide sex trafficking operation was one woman saying no to him.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. It's as though when a woman says no to a man and makes him feel he's losing his sense of power and control, the results can be absolutely deadly. Mm. And I suspect that's what underpins the motives of men like Epstein, R. Kelly, Nygaard and Ranieri and countless other men who we've not had time to mention today. They cannot let go of their sense of entitlement to exercise power and control, particularly over women and girls. Yeah.
1: Let's leave these dangerous men behind us for now. We'll no doubt meet some of them in future episodes of this podcast. But to end this episode, do you want to share with the listeners, Kaz, what you've been reading or listening to this week?
0: Yes. As you can possibly tell, I've got a bit of a thing about Nixium at the moment. I'm fascinated by it. And I've been watching a docuseries created by HBO, and it's called The Vow. And it's all about Keith Ranieri and the Nexium cult. It's really fascinating, and you get to hear from quite a few former members, which is most interesting. Uh, You also get to see a lot of footage of Ranieri engaging with his various followers. But what really intrigued me was the way that Ranieri's appearance seemed to transform over time. I don't know if you've noticed this. um, Initially, he looked like a clean-shaven, slightly geeky tech guy. But then he lets his hair grow, and he grows a beard. And so he starts to look like the typical Western image that we have of Jesus. You know, the Jesus we see in the movies and in art, the, the long, dark hair and the beard. Yeah. And I just wondered if it was deliberate on his part. You know, was he setting himself up as some kind of saviour figure, a, a modern messiah? And it also comes out in the dynamics of Nixium. You know, he has his inner circle of disciples, his devoted followers. He used to speak to people in, in strange parables and riddles, delivering them sort of spiritual sermons, it felt as though he was deliberately fostering this public image of himself as the new Christ. I'm glad you mentioned that because I also noticed that. I'm glad I'm not the only one. I think it's it's quite obvious, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's very disturbing. Very, very disturbing. But what about you? What have you been listening to, Em? Well, we've already mentioned Real Crime Profile with Laura Richards,
1: Lisa Zambetti and Jim Clemente, which is just a superb listen. It's a it's a oh, real yeah. regular podcast for me. It's great. They're really good at staying up to date with current world events and often offer analysis on high-profile criminal cases as they unfold. Mm. But the other podcast we mentioned that I would like to plug is The Mysterious Mr. Epstein, which is produced by Wondery. And this is a six-part series which details Jeffrey Epstein's offending, which spanned from the mid-90s right through to his arrest in 2019. And it really deep dives into his relationship with Ghislaine Maxwell and a number of other really famous and powerful figures. For me, it was quite a shocking insight into what you can get away with if you have a ton of money and friends in high places. It also explores some of the controversial theories that surround Epstein's death.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a really good podcast series. And I think Real Crime Profile also do a series of episodes where they kind of deep dive into the mysterious Mr. Epstein, so you get kind of even more insight and analysis of it. Okay, thank you for listening to this episode of The Bloody Bible. As usual, you'll find our show notes on the website along with the links to our social media accounts. But until next time, stay safe, stay away from dangerous men, and we'll see you later. See ya! The Bloody Bible podcast is supported by funding from the United Kingdom Arts and Humanities Research Council as part of the Shiloh Project Research Grant. Special thanks to Professor Johanna Stiebert at the University of Leeds, who commissioned us to create this podcast. The podcast is produced by Carolyn Blythe, Emily Colgan, and me, Richard Bonifant, who also recorded and edited each episode whilst apologising profusely on behalf of all men music for this podcast is called stalker and is by alexis ortiz sofield courtesy of pixabay music and the podcast artwork was created by sarah lee west links to all of our social media including our website can be found in the notes for each episode thanks for listening